You're listening to the Living Leadership Podcast, Growing Disciple-Making Leaders. In Matthew 6, Jesus teaches about living in faith in order to receive God's reward rather than man's reward. And he contrasts it, as we all know, with three examples of people living so that their achievements will be praised by the world. Three times he says, don't behave like the hypocrites do in your giving, your fasting, and your praying, because they have received their reward in full. I'm intrigued by that passage. The thing that interests me about it is that I doubt that the hypocrites were trying to be ungodly. I think much more likely they were in an environment that expected spiritual people to look like this. And people want to see public piety and competent religion so they can aspire to it. And that's not always wrong. Jesus had told the disciples just before, let your light so shine before men that people will see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It isn't wrong that the hypocrites give fast and pray. It's why they give fast and pray. It's possible to do good things, even leader-type things, that are nevertheless hypocrisy because they are oriented to me getting the glory rather than God getting the glory. Lots of ways, as all of us know, of seeking validation that actually lead us into that spiritually devastating mixture of wanting God to get the glory and actually for me to get affirmed. There are two main temptations that arise from this, I think, for me. Uh, One is to let let people see my good deeds so they praise me. And the other one is to not let people see good deeds at all for fear that I'll siphon off God's glory and take it for myself. Now, I assume that there was a time when these people didn't act like this. Wonder what changed them. Wonder whether it could have been prevented. I really relate to the hypocrites in Matthew 6 to an uncomfortable degree. So uh, when the planning team asked me to bring the pastoral reflection this year, I decided I'd tell you something of my story, and particularly about the things that tempt me to step out of a God-centered spirituality into a man-centered one or a ministry-centered one, and particularly the temptation to do righteous acts before people to be seen by them, which is the particular pestilence that stalks me at noonday. Your temptations will not be the same as mine, but you have other things that want to seduce you too. The issues I'm going to talk about uh, this evening remain live ones for me today, but they came to a real head about 12 years ago on a day that remains as vivid for me as yesterday. Uh, Apologies for all those who have heard the story. Uh, I only have one story, really. (laughs) 12 years ago, I was involved in discipling and training students and student leaders for UCCF. I love seeing them mature. I enjoyed nurturing and equipping and leading them in evangelism and doing my best to create an environment which was conducive to spiritual growth. So much of what we do is uh, cultivating soil, isn't it, in which people grow. I thought I was doing pretty well at it. Actually, it was worse than that. I really fancied myself. I thought I was a great discipler, strategist, Bible teacher. I had uh, training and degrees coming out of my ears and I was satisfied with them. Well, on the day in question, my self-trust and my self-confidence in my ability all came abruptly crashing down in a rather striking fashion. 
an Irish friend of mine, wise man, uh, with those words that we all hear just occasionally and find simultaneously intriguing and scary, said, Marcus, I think God's told me to tell you something. And I think we should go for a walk in the country for me to tell you. And we did. With gentle kindness and complete directness, when I said, well, what is it then? He said, it's this. You're a really nasty legalist. You have nothing discernible of the grace of God in your life. You drive people with a whip. I fear for you. And I think you need to repent of just about everything. And you know, as soon as the words left his mouth, I just knew he was right. I don't know how the Holy Spirit was affirming everything he said. The penny dropped, and I could sense the bottom dropping out of my ministry. Well, that evening afterwards, I was scheduled to have dinner with the Christian Union president and then to speak to their Christian Union on evangelism. Over the meal with the guy, I said, So, how are you doing spiritually? And he replied, I'm doing wonderfully. Thanks. What about you? So I told him. I said, my head is spinning. I think I've just received one of those big wake-up calls, a real kick in the pants. <coughs> and I can still remember his response. He said, well, that's interesting. Seeing as you've been so honest, I'm not doing wonderfully. I'm doing terribly. It turned out that the nub of his problem was that he had persuaded himself that he was either in God's good books or bad books according to the, the amount that he read the Bible and witnessed. His estimation of God's pleasure in him and love for him was fluctuating wildly according to the exercise of his own strength. Uh, just as an aside, I've recently seen exactly the same thing in a home group situation where some of the members are deeply conflicted because they assume that God must love them to some degree, after all, he saved them. But knowing the struggle that they have with the old nature, they also assume that he must be almost perpetually annoyed with them every time they sin. Surely God is frowning on me most of the time, one said. I regularly hear believers pray prayers, acknowledging how much we must have disappointed him this week. They actually reveal underneath that we really think that our status, now we're saved, is still sinner who God grudgingly accepts despite himself, rather than saint who has been made utterly new and completely accepted in love because of Jesus. Evangelical churches, we have our fair share of guilt-ridden crypto-Catholics, don't we? by which I mean real believers for whom the implication of the rebirth hasn't really sunk in regarding how God views them in Christ. Anyway, back to the story. I went with the CU leader uh, up to the Christian Union evening meeting. This was a group that had an absolutely brilliant program. I know, I had planned it. <laughs> it ticked every possible box for subjects and speakers that I thought equated to well-trained, mature discipleship and competent mission. The thing was that they asked for lots of talks on evangelism, but very rarely did any. And by this point, I was getting particularly worried about why not, especially as I'd asked for another one on this particular evening. So I began by saying, listen, folks, on the odd occasions you do do something evangelistic, why do you do it? And there was a long pause. And finally they said, because you just make us feel so guilty when we don't. We don't do it out of love for God. We do it out of fear of you. And because we know we should. We don't want to let you down. I think it was the biggest gulp moment of my life. 
Because that day, God put his finger on the spot and made me realise that for two years, I had produced a programme that looked fantastic on paper, but was completely disconnected from what was going on in their hearts. Or more precisely, what wasn't going on in their hearts. I had conformed them to my programme-driven expectations and in the process of neglected nurturing their souls. No grace in that situation, only legalism. I had led them for two years into guilt-driven drudgery that was really good-looking. On the odd occasions they did share the gospel, it came from grudging obligation rather than hearts that were saturated with grace and joy. A, I'm really miserable, but these facts are true and you can come and be like me is not a particularly winsome proclamation of the good news. That leads to people explaining about the Lord, but not exulting in the Lord before the world. Go up and down the Psalms and count the number of times when anything that is related to evangelism or witness is described as praising him to the world or worshipping him in front of the world. What was the problem? Was it that doing good Bible teaching with them or training them to challenge their culture with truth was wrong? Well, clearly not. The error was that I had confused and entirely equated doing those things with knowing the Lord. And therefore I had the wrong goal in mind when I set about leading them and did the wrong things as a result. But it looked pretty good to me and I couldn't see what the flaws were. That night, I, well, it's the only time I've ever physically thrown a talk out of a window and decided I didn't want to do that one. But that night I decided I wanted to learn and teach everything I can about this grace that was just starting to penetrate and is still just starting to penetrate. In fact, I really don't want to teach anything else because the unmerited grace of God to sinners in Jesus is the gospel. It's growing knowledge and experience of the truth of God's grace that leads to godliness and mature discipleship. So I'd thrown a lot of biblical teaching at that group over two years. But without the correct foundations laid in their lives and in my life, the biblical teaching and training was actually of comparatively limited value. I now think of it being a little bit like a building site where there's no foundation laid, and me bringing lots of good material and throwing it in a big heap on the building site, but with no foundations, nothing secure and lasting is built. Or possibly a little bit like me having a brilliant radio transmitter that broadcasts crystal clear messages, but nobody having the receiver turned on. You can teach all you like, but if the receiver's not turned on or the foundation isn't laid, it's of limited value. The main foundation for discipleship, surely, is laid when people learn to be self-feeders on the word. But the main motivation for that is the grace of God in Christ. In fact, it's the main motivation for everything, isn't it? There's no reason to pray. No reason at all to pray unless we believe the Lord is full of unfailing grace. There's no reason to praise him to the world unless we are full of marvel at how good he has been to us. There is no strength for service and endurance unless we are persuaded that he has been good and is good and will be good to us. Unless we know his love. At rock bottom, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And the joy of the Lord is a consequence of living in grace. Now, <clears throat> where had I gone wrong? Why had I gone wrong? I think where I went wrong was when I subconsciously decided that spiritual growth rested exclusively in skilled training 
rather than in knowing the love of God. That's where I went wrong. It's a critically easy mistake for educated young leaders to make, isn't it? And therefore, of course, I devoted my energies to training people in skills rather than laying careful foundations of our identity in Jesus. To equipping with knowledge rather than growing in love. At the end of the day, it all came down to me. So much for Jeremiah 9.23, which says, This is what the Lord says, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let those who boast, boast about this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. This was all round home for me a couple of years later when I got to spend a, a week teaching Philippians on a ski holiday in France, as you do. And uh, during that week, fascinating week, we had about 50 on the party and I must have had 20 separate conversations with people, all of which went like this. There's loads of joy in this book in Philippians and absolutely none in our lives. Does that mean there's something wrong? Are we meant to have this? I said, yeah, it means there's something wrong. And I asked them all the same questions. Number one, why do you read your Bible? And without exception, every single one said, for knowledge, I want to know more about God. And don't mishear me, that's not entirely a bad thing. But coupled with the second question, it is a bad thing. My second question was, do you ever take regular time in your schedule just to adore your God and his Christ? And 100% said no. And the third question I asked them was, for want of a better word, could you describe to me the state of your worship life at the moment? Some were very cagey at that kind of language, thinking that I might be about to suggest something emotional to them. Others said, worship doesn't have anything to do with my singing. That is simply every dutiful act of service I bring to God in obedience. To which the answer is, no, it isn't. That's pagan thinking. There is an important place for duty, but it is not there to replace delight. When it does, that makes an idol out of my service. All the while persuading myself that what I'm doing is worshipping. But the real shock in all these conversations was that every single person said, I go to a good Bible teaching church and I love Bible studies. So I think they'd made exactly the same error as me, including all the leaders among them who were having those conversations. They were registering and acknowledging facts about the Lord in their heads, but they had no joy. And I have to say, comparatively little appetite in their hearts either. Because they had confused mentally acknowledging the truth of the facts with living as a worshipping disciple. Now, I don't want to query whether any of those were converted or unconverted. That's for the Lord. But when somebody says to me, I don't think I've known anything in my life that I would equate with Christian joy from the day I was converted until now, we ought to at least have some alarm bells ringing, oughtn't we? Just as an aside, I, I do sometimes wonder if some of our activities and trainings act more as substitutes for discipleship than spurs to it. Take the home group that has fallen into being merely a comfortable Bible study that isn't applied for life change. That was dynamic once but isn't anymore. I can think of some. You probably can too. Where given a choice between an uncomfortable evening sharing Jesus with a next door neighbour or a nice evening with friends at a spiritual looking meeting where you will be affirmed for going... For some, that's an absolute no-brainer. In that instance, we have replaced Christian living with a Bible study evening and not even noticed. 
Most churches have at least some people who confuse attendance with faithfulness and believe they are mature Christians simply because they've been there every week for 30 years. Maybe some of us believe that uh, as leaders we confuse leading with faithfulness and think we are mature simply because we get to lead. Now why does that trap seduce me? I think my two main answers are this. Busyness on the one hand and pride on the other. Busyness, because given all the competing demands on time, the easiest thing in the world for me is to confuse and replace discipleship and community, which is long-term and life-on-life, with training, which can be done in one-off sessions I can tick off on my list. Training is merely one subset of discipleship. Uh, Turn up with me uh, 2 Timothy 3.10. It's a verse for this evening. 2 Timothy 3.10, I think, is a marvellous definition of discipling someone. Where Paul says, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra? The persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. You know all about my teaching, my way of life, purpose, faith, (coughs) patience, love, endurance, persecutions and suffering. See, when we replace discipleship with training, it's a wrong category. I'm tempted to say, you know all about my teaching and leave it there. Because that's easy. I can do that by inviting somebody into a teaching session, whereas if I want to do the rest, I've got to invite them into my life, come and live in my house, and that's much more difficult. Yet I can just leave it at the teaching bit and assume that I have discipled when I haven't, feeling that I've done a good job that I can note down for my annual appraisal. Busyness, that's one. Pride's the main one for me. Spurgeon said, pride is a groundless, brainless thing and the maddest thing that can exist. Ah, it doesn't stop me. For skilled, bright, competent Christian leaders who have very few tangible measures of success, it's so tempting, isn't it? I wanted to be seen to do all the right things by my boss. I wanted a successful ministry. And Paul says that love builds up And knowledge puffs up in 1 Corinthians 8. And I'm a sucker for that. I like the pedestal. Value me because I have achieved so much or sacrificed so much for the Lord. It is the opposite of faith. Eugene Peterson says this. The demands on leaders often far outrun our spiritual capital. We need to acquire a spirituality adequate to our vocation. An interior life adequate to the exterior. Let me just say that again. It's, it's very good. The demands on leaders often far outrun our spiritual capital. We need to acquire a spirituality adequate to our vocation. An interior life adequate to the exterior. Shortly uh, after that ski holiday, I was talking to John Risbridger down here and, and Julian Hardiman. Uh, actually, um, here, about some of these things. About how we keep our souls healthy. How do we keep growing in grace? How do we find community who help us to do that? And 
as it happens, this conference was one of the outcomes of that conversation. We are nurturers of soil, helping people be spiritually receptive to the Lord. I thought that was what I was doing when I was producing ministries and groups that externally looked very good, at least to my eyes. They were apparently enjoyed, they were well attended. I thought that the program ought to be producing mature disciples. It wasn't. In truth, what I had done was swap community for programs and encourage people to find their identity in visible activities rather than in Christ. I poured the word of God in, but forgot that in Mark 4, the thing that causes different outcomes in the parable of the soils isn't the seed of the word, that's the same in each case. It's the spiritual receptiveness of the soil. Grace is core to discipleship. Of this I am absolutely certain. The key discipleship question is, are we being transformed from glory unto glory by being transfixed with our Christ? Are we delighting ourselves in the Lord? Or are we assuming that we have more of the life of God merely by knowing some more facts? Or are our people? Are we expecting that vibrant church life consists in the quality and quantity of our activities that we can point to? On the day of judgment, many are going to stand before the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons and perform miracles? Max Licardo writes about that. These people are standing before the throne of God and bragging about themselves. The great trumpet has sounded and they're still sounding their own. Rather than singing his praises, they're singing their own. Rather than worshipping God, they're reading their resumes. When they should be speechless, they speak. In the very aura of the king, they boast of self. Which is worse, their arrogance or their blindness. All the things they did, the prophesying in his name and casting out demons and performing miracles, gave an appearance of a genuine relationship with Jesus. An appearance of a genuine relationship with Jesus isn't something Jesus is after. Uh, for me, pride very quickly leads to what Tim Keller calls ministry idolatry. Uh, maybe for you it is the fear of not performing that leads to ministry idolatry. It comes down to this. As a gospel minister, I find it very easy to forget the gospel. Oh, not in theory. I say all the right things and believe them in my head. But in practice, readily replace it with other things that look like they produce visible results more rapidly. Or please people. Of course, without grace being the engine, there is no motivation to endure in our work. Well, possibly a desperate need to keep up appearances, even when I know that there's an enormous gulf between the outside and my heart. Without grace, when the pressures come, I can fall equally into self-justifying Phariseeism on the one hand. Oh, I've done so much for you, God. I've done so much for you, church. Or self-pitying failure on the other hand. I can't do this anyway, so why bother? I, I, I kind of oscillate between those two. I forget grace very quickly in the demands of the day. And that's the reason for wanting to teach it so much. Because I leak like a sieve and need to remind myself every day. However slow to learn I am, however incompetent, I am completely forgiven and declared utterly righteous in Jesus. And so are you. And this righteousness is received by faith, not by works. 
My friends, this is what severs the root of pride. This is what destroys the root of ministry idolatry because it annihilates my reputation, my need for reputation. It destroys my need to be applauded. When we strive for reputation, it reveals that what we're trusting is reputation. But it also reveals that deep down we don't really believe that we already have a perfect reputation in Jesus and perfect righteousness in being justified. Praise God, at least now I am dimly aware of it. Previously I wasn't even aware of the struggle, I was blind to it. And praise him even more that his forgiveness isn't rooted in the quality of my spiritual discernment, but in the blood of Jesus. For the last five years, this conference has uh, really been about helping each other celebrate being united to Jesus and standing on the promises. Reminding each other at least once a year, more often if we get the chance in between, never to forget our freedom in Christ and thereby return to living as slaves. Never to forget our adoption and our sonship and therefore return to living like we're orphans, dependent on our own works. Never to forget our justification and so become Pharisees. Never to forget our identity and so live like failures, desperate for the reward of people, as the hypocrites were. Never to forget our righteousness and end up driven by the need to perform and by works of the law. When this conference was uh, first being mooted, Julian uh, brought Acts 3.19 to the planning team as a foundational verse for us, which says this, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. When I'm getting exhausted, when I see other leaders being exhausted, just forces me to ask questions about whether I'm living in repentance and faith or not, and about the state of my worship life. How is my desire for God? What's my prayer life like, really? Once grace started to penetrate for me, I guess that started to come a little more easily, because grace means that all sin, and particularly my sin of self-reliance, is no longer fatal. Means you can bring it out into the light. It's not going to kill you. The measure of our walk with the Lord is not, have I managed in my own strength to screw myself up so that I haven't sinned this week? It's, do I want to walk in repentance and faith? Because repentance gives up on any possibility I can do the Christian life on my own. In my own strength, my own righteousness. And it gives up on any idea that being seen to be a good spiritual leader is remotely important. Acts 3 says if we want times of refreshing from the face of the Lord, we've got to live in repentance. I have to hear and respond to the gospel today. I have to appropriate and appreciate the value of the blood of Jesus to me today. And I have to desire the things of the Spirit today. To worship and enjoy God today. Every day has got to be a mini conversion. If I'm going to live and love as the person I've been recreated in Christ to be. There are two barriers to that lifestyle that I perpetually need help to tear down. The first is that I don't live in repentance and faith because I forget that grace is free. Uh, somebody, in, uh, somebody in home group said... 
listen, um, surely if I'm sinning now as a Christian, that means that God is going to sit me on the naughty step every time that happens. And I said, what does the naughty step look like? They said, well, presumably he's going to turn off the tap of grace for a predefined time and I won't get grace for it. No, I won't live in repentance and faith if I forget that grace is free. And second, I won't live in repentance and faith if I trust myself and rely on my own strength for my life or my ministry. Where I had got to was joyless. And therefore it was spiritually strengthless, regardless of how competent it looked. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Nothing else. I need my friends constantly to help me not drift back to that place. Constantly. I'll go there. That's the default setting of my heart. Growing in God means having a heart that is happy in God. And having a heart that is happy in God depends in turn on knowing the joy of the Lord. And knowing the joy of the Lord depends in turn on being ravished by the beauty of the glory of God's grace. And enjoying grace depends on living in repentance and faith as he enables us. Well, may these days be ones in which we encourage each other not to boast in our wisdom or our strength or our riches in whatever form they may come to us, but rather help each other to enjoy being sons, not slaves, and adopted, not orphans. Amen. For listening to this episode of the Living Leadership Podcast. For more about Living Leadership, to connect with us, to give, or to sign up for regular prayer news, please visit livingleadership.org. Blessings.